escape from Cape Town. Speaking of escape, I must tell you of an incident which occurred the very next morning. Tess had slipped on her gown and left at the first light of day. I slept for two more hours and then went downstairs looking for a decent breakfast, or at the very least some palatable coffee, when I came upon the old gardener who was trimming the hedges. He came up to me and said, My name is Chester Himes, and I live here. You tell them from me, master, that if I don't bring these people to justice in my life, my ghost shall return and enter the body of another man, and he will try, and so on forever, until we are all brought to bloody justice, just deserts for this maggoty abomination of a social system. I'm just parroting here. I have no real idea what he was about. He left before I could question him. Can you believe it? I mean, really. And I just didn't have the time or the patience to explain it all to the properly constituted authorities. Well, imagine the impudence that took. Even though his statement was somewhat well phrased. All the same, saying it right out like that, and to a stranger, I mean, I'd never claim to have any commitment to the individual instance of social justice. It's just not done anymore. You would just end up looking like a fool and not making much money. I don't know about you, but I get so tired of traveling about and was so very happy to have this short stop in so familiar a place as South Africa can be. It was a thoroughly pleasant time, though it turned out to be a long two days. Twelve hours more and I would have turned to crime. Now, don't take me seriously, because I'm just kidding. I'd never rob a gas station. But I'd just kill for world peace. By the way, I discovered in my reading the most interesting thing about some of the natives down here. Apparently, among the Victorian Zulu, no man would mention the name of the chief of his tribe, or even the names of the progenitors of his chief so far as he could remember them. Nor will he utter common words which coincide with, or merely resemble in sound, tabooed names. Isn't that interesting? For instance, there once was a chief called Langa, which means the sun. Hence, the name of the sun was changed from Langa to Gala, and so remains to this day, though the actual Langa died more than a hundred years ago. 
I so admire the nameless social anthropologists who penetrated these primitive settings and selflessly rooted out these tidbits of knowledge. When Panda was king of Zululand, the word for a root of a tree was changed to Nezabo because Impando was just too close. Again, the word for lies and slander was altered from Amasebo to Amakwata because Amasebo contains a syllable from the name of Panda's concubine. These substitutions are not, however, carried so far by the men as by the women, who omit every sound even remotely resembling one that occurs in a protected name. At the king's kraal, indeed, it is sometimes difficult to understand the speech of the royal wives, the women having a considerable vocabulary pulled from a hat. So the Zulu language of that day could have been said to be double. It's just another reminder that absolute silence is, of old, the wisest policy. Let's see. I was in something of a pickle out here at the Smuts's house. I don't know how they knew, but they seemed to feel Tess had spent the night in my rooms. Also... For some reason, they seemed suspicious of my relation to the help. I heard the mistress sending the old gardener away right within my earshot. And to think they thought I would mix with their domestics. Mrs. Smuts came up behind me while I was making the coffee I'd found in the kitchen. She didn't seem to like my toying with her pots and pans. It seems to me so easy to read an uncomfortable atmosphere in these tense touristic situations, and I always interpret them in a very sympathetic light. I suspect her brush of animosity had to do with the painful repression of an overwhelming desire to camp follow. It's so common with women in a military culture. I don't know. I guess she had motivation galore if one but hunter head for them. But that's not my job. In any case, she bid me follow her into the drawing room with what dregs of coffee I had managed to squeeze together. On her glass-topped coffee table was a large picture book entitled Wild Flowers of South Africa, but for some silly reason I read it Witchcraft of South Africa, which seemed perfectly absurd to me. I sat down on the couch and regarded it again, closer this time, and it still said Witchcraft. Well... No one would publish that, I said to myself. It wasn't until I picked it up off the table and actually held it in my hands that I saw it said, Wildflowers. Of course, I knew it said Wildflowers, even when my foolish eyes had it saying Witchcraft. 
I must have been very upset even then, she said, seeing me holding her book. Oh, are you interested in wildflowers? I had to chuckle under my breath as I said, No, not really, but they do seem to pop up in the strangest places. Then she asked me why I was chuckling, and I just said, I wasn't chuckling. I must be suffering some respiratory distress. We were all so near the knuckle out here. It was then she told me she and Mr. Smuts had been called away on urgent business to the Transvaal, and Tess was returning to school in Rhodesia. It would be necessary, she said, to vacate their house this very day. My goodness, I said. I'll have to move to a hotel. What a shame I shan't have another night here. But secretly I wasn't all that upset. I rather enjoyed living in a suitcase. She said she'd give me the name of one that would suit me to a T, but I said, no, I'll just stay at the Sheraton or the Hilton or whatever they have down here. She said she'd drive me in herself whenever I was ready. So you see, everything worked out amicably. I was only sorry not to have had a chance to thank Mr. Smuts in person and bid farewell to their daughter. She said this was a pity and not at all possible. It was a really warm and wonderful visit in the household of some South African native peoples, and I was so pleased to have had the experience. We drove into town then in her Mercedes coupe, quite a marvel of precision engineering. By the way, Mrs. Smuts, Beverly, but we never reached a first name familiarity, had a full head of thick, full-bodied hair, so I asked her to share her secret. She said it was really quite simple. She bought an avocado at the supermarket and then let it grow quite overripe on top of the refrigerator for from 10 to 14 days. Then she peeled it and pitted it, osterized it, and rubbed it vigorously into her scalp for five minutes. Twenty minutes later, she'd shampoo, rinse, and voila, a thick, rich head of hair. We talked of this and that as we drove along. My bags were safely stowed in the boot, their word for trunk. She told me that this car was her very own and that she was extremely fond of it. She and her husband were to go to Johannesburg where he would stay while she went on to their country place outside the city. It was very beautiful and it belonged to her father and his father before him, she said. I said it must be very pleasant to have a country retreat to go to, and she said, Yes, it was. 
As we approached the center of town, I saw many black people walking right on the same sidewalk, if not exactly arm in arm, with white people. And here I had heard that they kept the races totally separate. Well, so much for that piece of misinformation. She dropped me at the front door of the Cape Hilton, and I bid her a fond adieu. It was such a lovely visit, and so sad it was cut short. I just had time to slam the door as she swung her Mercedes out of the drive. I checked in speedily and was shown to my room by a bellhop named Johnson, who was, believe this or not, an American Negro. I was so happy to be there because I just love room service. I find nothing quite so civilized as having a BLT and fries wheeled in on a zinc salver. It's something you can demand when you go international class. After lunch, I walked to a Kruger's bunk, which is what they call banks down here. I had one of the Rand's barons, which is their word for bank officers, sell me some gold coins. I thought since I was there, I might just as well get some souvenirs. But I only bought a pound or so because I didn't want to be weighted down for the rest of my trip. I walked around town for a few hours totally unafraid, amongst the smiling faces and all those bicycles. I saw some of their old Dutch houses. They are impossible to describe except to mention their white walls, their gables, their shuttered white windows, their slave quarters. Not that I think you are really interested in any of this. Surely no more than myself. It was just casual tourism close to the hotel. Don't worry about that. I walked to the foot of Adderley Street and saw the Van Rybeek statue. It was one of her great heroes. I don't know what he did, but seemed to remember hearing somewhere he had found a great pipe of diamonds pushing out through a fissure in the earth somewhere in the Hex River Valley. Later, Cayman told me they found so many diamonds at the mouth of the Orange River, the market almost collapsed. If it weren't for a monopoly, it would collapse, he said. He says there are scads of hope diamonds all over. But then he liked to hear himself talk. And it was walking back from the statue that I was attacked so savagely and beaten on the street. Yes, this is a strange story. And I pray to God you don't read this and then start saying South Africa isn't safe for all your friends. Because it isn't really as bad as it seems. Really, just another nut with an umbrella. It happened like this. I had stopped a young lady 
who seemed to be walking in my direction and sought to question her on certain local customs. Yes, of course, I was chatting her up. I admit this much. And this did lead to that as it will in any conversation. And then, from out of the big blue sky itself, she seemed shocked and offended and began yelling at me in a high-pitched Afrikaans. Of course, I didn't understand a word, and I don't see how anyone could have. But my, isn't the female voice raised in anger a revolting thing to hear? Then a man came up, a big strapping Afrikander of some sort, and she seemed to talk to him while pointing at me and spit and spew a lot of drivel about what I had done. For some silly reason, I then attempted to explain myself to him, and as I was struggling through these sentences, the man came down upon me and began heavily to box my ears with his umbrella. Then he seized me by the arm and tried to drag me down. I clung to a parking meter and was determined to keep my hold, even at the risk of breaking my wrist bones. The passers-by were witnessing the scene, the man swearing at me, dragging and belaboring me. But I remained still. After all, he was strong and I was weak. Don't be a fool and get yourself badly hurt, spoke the wisdom of my heart. Some of the passers-by were moved to pity and exclaimed, Man, let him alone. Don't beat him. He is not to blame. He is not one of us. He is a degenerate from England. I couldn't really understand them, so I can only guess what they said. No fear, cried the man, but he seemed somewhat crestfallen and stopped pummeling me. He let go my arm, swore at me some, and then moved away. My heart was beating fast within my breast, and I was wondering whether I should ever reach my destination alive. Before I crawled away, the man cast an angry look at me and, pointing his finger, growled, "'Take care!' Let me once more see you in Cape Town, and I shall show you what I do. I hurried back to my room with my head down and my tail between my legs. Such was the ferocity of my beating. So the physical threat is very real, I repeated to myself for the nth time. And it's brawn over brain again in the capitals of Europe. I was very upset, and to think I was merely feeling my way through a morass of customs foreign to myself and had, in the process, addressed a frank and honest question of a young lady encountered on a street corner. So what if I were wrong? It had to be as much her fault as my own. I was still in a state of frightening distraction when the phone rang. It was Nanette calling in what seemed to me to be some agitated state. 
Oh, Des, what did you do? I've just had the strangest interview with Mrs. Smuts. She stopped over here to talk to the people we're staying with. What did you say? What did you do? Very little, I assure you, I said impassively. I was quite beyond worrying about my reputation in a town this far away from the action. And with a woman like Nanette, the last thing he wanted to show was any uncertainty or weakness. She would tell you to go into the garden and eat worms. And the tourist board called to ask how soon before our party sailed. And then I found out our repairs had been affected with unexpected, extraordinary, really, speed. We sail at dawn. Not a moment too soon, I squealed, before I could check myself. Are you all right, Desi? she asked. It's nothing. No, I'm Marvy. Really, I protested, perhaps a bit weakly. And in any case, she continued, we dine tonight at the Modi Natal. It's Raj Continental, and I just know you'll love it. You know that Ernest and I were very serious about eating. That would be the curry joint. Blah, blah, blah. I just couldn't listen to her anymore and burst into tears. I was beaten in the street, I cried. Beaten in the street. Don't move. I'll be right over, she responded instantly. She hung up. Actually, I was very happy to have her visit. All this stress had made me feel quite lonely. Ah, this constantly shifting storehouse of character actors we call personality. Getting my ears boxed on a strange street by a stranger certainly did make me wonder. Wonder how people suddenly got so much better than me all of a sudden. At times like that, I just had to grab hold of myself and remember what this world wants. And I might add, it doesn't much mind how it gets it. Or what sort of messy residue ensues and lingers upon the memory sheet of its climax emission and subsequent cashiering on the carpet of sound, liquid management, and fiscal continence. And then you'll say, sure, he feared lest his fluidity be lost playing spillikins in the bedroom. But what are our best years, then? Our prime. Just a solvent bank of sottish memories soon to be overdrawn? And if they but be pleasantly foolish, then what matter whether they transpire in a sweating hair-walled tenement slum or the palace of a burger? It might sound as if I'm emotionally involved here, but I must tell you, I'm not. And I'm right in my own way. I know I have been described as having a pessimistic drag on the social spirit, 
as suffering a certain bafflement before evil, which precludes the modest intimacy of casual encounter. I don't think that's true. As for the charge that I'm stupid, well, I don't think I should respond to that sort of slur. But I imagine it is necessary to say a few words on the quality of intelligence contained in these sentiments. For indeed everyone, from the meanest savage and his sour mash, to the epicure and his raw meat, knows something. Knows quite a lot, actually, as much as he need know. A skullful, if you wish. But these towers of silence, these men of executive action, whose mentation is piled straight up to the sky, the abode of lucky little gods and their venery on pie and lineality seem perfectly Persian in character, where mountain and tomb are analogous. And we have here for reference only the words of the poet being roughly, The muscle man will not be converted until he can have Uri in paradise. Ah, the hoarse cry of their strangled masses continuously moving into a deeper voice and a less profound syntax, resolving all questions of value and meaning in terms of depth of pile. But it be an historic inevitability that this sort of emotional indigence will sandbag out end, and impoverished will be seen to be poor. We have already witnessed, within the soon-to-be-completed decade, numberless interpenetrations of opposite rectifications of name, resolutions of contradiction, even a known instance of negation of negativity herself. It really is a greater fool market for the second gun theory. Of course, youth will be attracted to this synthetic thought until the realities of commercial and martial intercourse are grasped, after which time it will retain mere manipulative value to the users with no perceived attraction or interest to the used. And here, in the actual movement of mind, many will hesitate at the seemingly simple action of mental stacking. This categorical action of putting your known world into a binomial filing cabinet where it will remain safe and be ready for a rapid extraction. And those who so reject will then mistakenly proceed toward a blanket rejection of all such rational processing and social mechanization. We'll take the easy way out, in other words, and gain such unsightly fat. And who can blame them? I certainly have no vested interest in a fair fight. But let me assure you, true movement will not be experienced by those on the road for a day trip 
or a motor jaunt to the lake country to watch the race wars. And I could care less if you agree with what I'm talking about. I don't think that is really what's at question here. It's not that sort of thing. And I do apologize in advance for when I turn toward the antisocial side. Perhaps it is a crime against the state. In the troubled sea of wickedness, who has the time to care enough to give the very best for a better life? The reality of failure being such a cramp on la douceur de vivre. Such a shaving, really. But no, I don't think I deserve a big blob on the police blotter for that. Not to this day. Not for something so simple and misunderstood as a speech impediment. If you remember, I was sitting on my bed in my room at the Cape Hilton waiting for Nanette to come. I had been crying because a man in the street had beat me about the head with his umbrella. This drove me into a bout of crippling subjectivity and speculative thought from which I had scarce recovered when Nanette pushed through the door. She pulled me down onto the bed and lay beside me, pressing her clothing against my body. She was wearing a handsome outfit. A brown and gray fleck-worsted twill cut quite nicely on the diagonal with a chenet silk blouse. She pressed her large breasts, quite contained in a large brassiere, high up onto my chest just below the neck. She was comfort itself at that moment, small as she was. I can't remember ever having felt a deeper longing for the more profound contact between people. I stood up and straightened the pleats in my trousers as soon as I was able. I walked to the window and said, You're not really fair to me, Nanette. You know that, don't you? You shouldn't use me like this, tempt me and take advantage of my weakness. We older women really aren't all that attractive, are we, Desmond? After I'd seen everything there was to see out the window, I snapped, Don't change the subject. Perhaps I was hungry. She was still on the bed, lying on her stomach. I couldn't help but notice the rear of her knee, where her skirt had hiked above her slip. Anyway... What attracts me has absolutely nothing to do with the theoretics of attraction. She shifted herself deftly and sat back against two fluffy pillows. You do fancy yourself, don't you, Mr. Desmond? I didn't like her using that name. She lit a filtered cigarette and languidly crossed her legs. Can you imagine a people so reduced, my dear friend Desmond, so reduced that they live on brown soap and calluses? I do hope you don't have any. They are such a sign of poverty. I did, in fact, have one on my foot.
the small callous as they go, nothing to be ashamed of. I put it down to poor pediatric podiatry and perhaps an early injury to certain bones and ligaments. But why was I wasting this time looking through my shoes? Imagine them about their daily lives, she continued. Little iron men in overalls stained black with labor. Leathery little women in rayon and polyester. Children bound with cord. Oh, if only you could, if only you had that talent. If only you could imagine something that wasn't somehow snarky, Des, darling. I'm sure you'd go far. I assure you, I retorted sharply, I'll go no farther than public transport or private carriage can carry me. You know how I abhor walking. Oh, you silly. You don't like to walk because your legs are so thin and bandy. She had tweaked me there. How I hated how she turned the conversation sour when I was only interested in cogent repartee. I could never properly appreciate an ad hominem, I said coolly. You mean ad homo, don't you, Desi? With this she got up crossed the room and casually picked up a very lovely antique blue shaving mug designed with fetching small black sardines and given to me from my mother's personal collection when I was still a schoolboy. Then she dropped it on the floor where it shattered into a hundred pieces. It was French from the nineteenth century. It must have cost hundreds. Ah, how these physical objects and events in real time seem to resemble our deeper, inner lives. She touched at the pieces ever so slightly with the toe of her left shoe, and said, I don't know what to make of you, Desmond. A mouse trap or a time bomb? Make of me? Oh, that's a good one. I could see right from there it was going to be a difficult night before sailing. I almost hoped for some intriguing special event on the television. There was a big Trinitron in the corner of the room. I crossed to it and flipped on the state channel. Our first selection was an information program on the achievements of the South African state in meeting the challenges of the future, beginning with the work of their famous surgeons. They showed some perfectly revolting footage of an open-heart transplant. With the gurgling and the palpitating, I was eventually forced to drop my head between my knees to keep from fainting. Nanette went into the bathroom. I believe she had a bowel movement because when she came out she was dressed only in her slip. She just stood there basking in the afterglow of laxative action. But she was dancing in a plastic bag as far as I was concerned. The program continued with actual pictures of the atomic test made in their Pacific wastes. 
They explained in voiceover that these pictures were released at this time to forewarn the world of South Africa's intention to use just such weaponry should internal affairs transpire to the detriment of their internal integrity. Of course, this was nothing new. We've all known about it for years. Just another annihilation threat, I said to myself. We ordered up some beer and peanuts and settled in for some good telly till dinner time. Cayman was to come by and meet us here. He was away on business. Next, they showed all about the program for South African cosmonauts. As I understand it, there are plans afoot to launch the entire tribe into outer space and give the whole country over to concessionaires who will administer it on a colonial basis. But this is hearsay. The television was getting warmed up now, and the colors were quite vivid, if not realistic. Nanette had hitched her slip-up above her knees, but I was firm in my determination to ignore her. There was a feature on the ABC, a fraternal organization dedicated to the old way and stability in the region. The show ended with a demonstration of a brand new invention developed at Wittersrand U, a huge picking machine the size of a field house, which eliminates almost completely the need for agricultural workers. It all goes to show, I suppose, the adaptability of lonely and isolated people when they bond as brothers against intrusive notions. After this, we watched a popular series in which a wife was blamed for her husband's killing because she had inadvertently cursed the earth on which he had been slain. She was put into a psychiatric trance following electroconvulsive therapy in which state the curse was broken, but they all discovered that in another existence there is another guilt more complex, more pernicious. It was so full of commercials. First, a car, then a garbage bag, then wine, dog food, burgers, more wine, pain relievers, human scent improvers. By the end of it all, Nanette had her hand down in my trousers and forced me to ejaculate into the folds of her lingerie. Oh, God, I wish you hadn't done that, Nanette, I said when she had finished with me. Oh, don't be mad, Desi, she cooed. I know I'm vain, but that's what it's all about. Don't you know that? I know no such thing, I replied archly as I went into the toilet to clean myself. Secretly, I wasn't totally displeased, but I can't for the life of me imagine what pleasure she could have taken from such a sterile exercise. 
When I came out, she called me to the bed and bid me kiss her. I did, and then she whispered that Ernest was on his way up, that he would be there in a matter of seconds. I don't know how she knew. I didn't hear the telephone ring, but I hopped right up and met him as he came through the door. He walked into the room with that aura of authority one associates with the vice squad and took it in with those big green eyes of his. And there lay Nanette on the rumpled bed, her high-heeled shoes still on her feet, her slip above the tops of her nylon stockings revealing, indeed, the straps that led up to her garter belt something which I hadn't even suspected. And there was a large wet spot on the silk just where it creased itself. And as if I weren't already sufficiently compromised, she lay there smiling a very naughty and insipid smirk. It seemed antique somehow, though undeniably sensual in that torpid atmosphere. Cayman took my arm at the elbow and turned me toward the door. I half expected there to be a shorter, fatter, and balding version of himself in the corridor, as well as two or three press photographers. Just remember, son, he said in a voice both affected and paternal. Don't get into anything you can't get yourself out of. I didn't get into anything, I protested. It was just a little bit humiliating to have him talking to me in that mock, serious tone of voice. We both looked down and noticed I wasn't wearing any shoes. It is strange how embarrassing that can be. I don't know that he suspected anything had been going on between Nanette and I as indeed there hadn't. But a man like that could make something out of nothing. So I told him there had been a freak shower. Nanette had been soaked. We had sent her suit to the valet service. It had just returned, and she had somehow spilled a splash of beer into her lap. He seemed to accept this, though I assure you I invested nothing in any of the possible responses he could have made. Plausible is a quality of trust in me. In any case, he said, If you want to hang by your thumbs, kid, I don't care. This sort of flippancy was just what got my dander up. Finally, they were very crude and manipulative people who were just taking advantage of my youth, my openness, and enmeshing me in a fabric of half-truth and bad faith. And I certainly had no desire to get embroiled in a domestic situation. There was a moment's silence. Then came and shrugged his shoulders and said, Let's eat. Nanette stood up and slipped on her suit. As she straightened her skirt, she said, Ernest and I will wait downstairs. Yeah, we'll wait for you in the oyster bar came and added. So there I was, left high and lonesome. Oh, how to escape her insane novella, 
I thought as I looked in the mirror. There seemed to be so little at issue here, and yet so much at stake. I dressed quickly and joined them downstairs in the bar 